This episode of What in the World is dedicated to Marielle Franco, the Afro-Brazilian politician and human rights activist who was assassinated on March 14, 2018. You have tuned into WERA LP Arlington, Virginia 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinisotu, and this is What in the World. This show, as you know, makes current issues of American foreign policy and global politics understandable and relevant to things that you can you know, relate to in your everyday life. And this is a place where we try to examine what you hear in the news and apply it to real world examples and to things that you can actually understand. And so I'm really happy to say that this show brings in women and people of color to just do that, to help explain what's going on in the news in a way that's fun and interesting. And on deck for this episode is the Brazilian elections. Uh, 2018 is a big year for elections globally as Various countries are experiencing heated contests between political parties that in some cases has led to violence, which we'll talk about uh, later on and or just deep divisions among various communities. So you may have heard about the Brazilian elections and some of the parallels that have been made to the 2016 elections here in the United States. So here to explain what in the world is going on in Brazil and what is um, at stake uh, for America and America's relationship with Brazil is none other than Miss Yana Nelson, who's been on the show. She returns to us. She spoke with us uh, just a little more than a year ago about uh, NAFTA and if it'll impact our happy hour. So if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you go back. It's episode number three. Yana, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me, Bumi. No problem. I'm really excited about this conversation. I, I won't repeat all of your wonderful um, accomplishments, but uh, just so people know who we're talking to, uh, Yana is a fellow at Foreign Policy Interrupted. She's a specialist on Latin America, especially Mexico and Brazilian issues. She previously was the vice president for Mexico, Central America and Caribbean for Speedside, a multinational government relations consulting firm. She's worked at State Department on various issues and she speaks multiple languages languages. Uh, Yana has a, an amazing background and um, I'm really happy that you're here to help me and everybody else understand, you know, Brazil. And you are a Brazilian American. You were born in Brazil to American parents, correct? That's correct. And uh, so I'm imagining these are some really interesting times and conversations in your in your family. How are things going with you and tracking this issue? What are the sort of conversations like with your family members? Well, again, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to, to be on What in the World. Right now, things in Brazil are, are a tad dicey. There's a lot of polarization, not unlike what's happening in the United States. Uh, families are, are arguing over the dinner table and friends are um, unfriending themselves on each other on Facebook. So so it, it is a bit challenging for, for social relationships in Brazil in general among Brazilians. And, and there's major differences between um, Brazilians in Brazil and Brazilians abroad. Hmm. So um, it's, it's not a fun time. But again, it's not unlike what's been happening in the United States over the last two years. Okay. And tell me a little bit more about the differences between the Brazilians abroad and the Brazilians in Brazil. What, what are the, some of the differences in their opinions? So the main challenge here, the main problem is we're, we're divided between the extreme right and the left. I wouldn't call them the extreme left but they're also not sent. Folks um, abroad, but of a certain education level as well. So, mm-hmm. so not necessarily economic migrants. Okay. Um, they're in favor of the left, not necessarily because of the left left policies, and we can go into those. Um, they're actually anti the extreme right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the extreme right is represented by a candidate called Bolsonaro, Jair Bolsonaro. And he um, brings forth uh, a series of Policy proposals are that tend to be very similar to what the fascists proposed uh, in in the lead up and right after the, the Second World War. So, so this is anti-migration, anti-minorities, anti-women, anti-gay. Very favorable towards violence, a supranationalist perspective. Um, that's the extreme right in Brazil. I see. And and so folks are are having to choose between left policies that they don't like and the extreme right 
nationalist fascist, really, and that's the correct term, for the candidate of the extreme right. Interesting, very interesting, and definitely parallels to what we see here um, in the United States. But let's take a step back before we jump into the elections. Many people may not actually know much about Brazil. I, for one, have a, an admiration for the country for a lot of its cultural connections to Africa, particularly because I am of Nigerian descent. I'm of Yoruba descent. I know that um, many slaves were brought to Brazil, and there's still a strong connection to Yoruba culture, Yoruba people. So I've always been intrigued about Brazil for, for that reason. Of course, there's the food and this carnival and all the fun things about Brazil. But from a like geopolitical, social, economic perspective, I don't know that I knew much about Brazil. Uh, so the one thing I did know was that Brazil was is one of the BRIC countries, B-R-I-C for our listeners. BRIC are the uh, five countries who had the fastest growing uh, economies in the world. And they set up a cooperative amongst themselves around trade, around government, governance. Everybody was either super excited about the BRIC countries or they were super threatened. And so BRIC is Brazil, Russia, India, China, and there's actually an S, which is South Africa. But we're going to focus on the B, which is which is Brazil. And so over the last several years, I learned that, you know, Brazil has been riddled with scandals and lots of scandals. <laughs> um, there was no shortage of, of news coverage of um, impeachments, of imprisonments, of uh, you know, presidents, um, assassinations earlier this year. Uh, one of the sad stories that I came across was of uh, Marielle Franco, who was assassinated. She was an elected official um, on the left, as I understand it. Uh, she was she was Afro-Brazilian. She was pro-women, pro-gay, pro you know, social programs that would help the poor living in her community. And she was sadly um, assassinated. Uh, and and so that sort of has also piqued my interest about what in the world is going on over there in Brazil. But anyways, Yana, you're the expert here. I'll stop rambling. <laughs> um, how did Brazil get to where it is today? And, and from your perspective, what are some key hysterical points that have created the Brazil that we see today? Thank you, Bumi. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get to Marielle Franco and the rise of violence and the rise of racism in Brazil. But let's let's take a step back and talk about Brazil in the 2000s um, and, and even in the late 90s. Ten years ago, Brazil was a, a positive story of emerging market success. We saw in the cover of every magazine. We talked about the World Cup. We talked about the Olympics. Brazil was on the up and up. It was is a rising star. And that's really the result of the work of two presidents. One is of opposing political views, actually. One is Cardoso, Fernando Enrique Cardoso, often called AFHC after his initials. And the other one is the famous Lula, who is now in jail, but has been a rock star over the last few years in the international arena. So those two presidents, each serving for um, eight-year mandates, eight-year-long uh, administrations, totaling 16 years, implemented very similar economic policies and even political policies. They had very stable macroeconomic orthodox, meaning traditional policies in which they were saving money. They were being very careful with the debt, making sure they made all the payments, making sure um, the, the fiscal balance of the country was very healthy. Um, they did that for 16 years. But in addition to that, they also focused on social policies. There was conditional cash transfers, which are essentially, um, quote unquote, free money. It's money one gives to folks who are in, at the lower end of the income spectrum. Um, it's not unlike... Um it's it's not like the systems in the United right. States like where, a, where like folks a wick. get exactly where folks get credit, where folks it's very similar to that. It's generally associated to making sure your kids are in school, making sure your kids are vaccinated. So that's the conditionality of it. It's conditioned to those elements. Um so Brazil was had very stable, very sound macroeconomic policies coupled with social policies. And you had these two leaders who, in very different ways, um, were well-known and respected in the international arena. So they were in Davos all the time. They were talking to, um, they were giving speeches at the UN. Um, Brazil was, was really the darling in the international stage. And that was um, the mid-90s and the, the 2000s. A lot of that started going, well, the situation of Brazil started getting worse at the end of the Lula administration and um, with his 
his successor who follows, Dilma Rousseff. Dilma is the, or uh, was the first president, uh, female president of Brazil. She herself has an amazing story. Um, she was tortured as a, a young activist during the dictatorship in Brazil, and she had built a name for herself in economics and in politics. So she had everything to do well. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Brazil, if during the Lula and the Cardoso administration, Brazil had rode a wave of what we call a commodity boom. Brazil is a, an agricultural economy, right? So it mostly produces iron ore and soybeans. And we'll talk about soybeans later. Because it's a commodity-based economy, when folks are buying a lot of agricultural products, then Brazil does well. And, and when they're not, Brazil doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as diversified as it should be. So Brazil rode that boom. And that boom ended when Dilma took office. It wasn't her fault. It just happened that way. Mm -hmm. um, so she didn't have much money to spend. And she had these grand visions of how a government-run company, such as, for example, Petrobras, but also others, Petrobras is the oil company, um, but also others. These government-run companies would create jobs, would create the economic boom. So she overspent. She spent much more than what she had. And overspending is is normal among politicians and among governments. But but she she definitely went way beyond what would be normal for Brazil. And um, so she spent two to three times more than his her previous her predecessors. And that created an economic crisis in Brazil. Not just an economic crisis, it also created a political crisis because. As a result of her overspending, and this is important because most people think it's corruption, but it's actually as a result of her overspending, the Brazilian Congress impeached her. They took her out of office, um, and it, it created a turmoil in Brazil in which the, the person, her vice president, the person who took over as president, wasn't very well respected, mm -hmm. had some people were concerned about, his, about corruption with him, but it turned out he was a good keeper of the seat. Right. So he wasn't actually in the last two years he's been governing. He wasn't a bad president. He, I wouldn't call him great, but he's been doing a relatively good job to maintain a stable environment. Parallel to all of this. And the reason why Lula is in jail is a, a long drawn out corruption investigation. In Brazil, corruption has been the name of the game for many, many years. And it's just the way you do politics. You you essentially pay people off to vote with you in Congress hmm. um, because it's a coalition democracy, right? So you have a number of parties. And the only way you can get majority in votes is if you bribe. But you can bribe people in, in two different ways. You either bribe them through corruption, through um, ill-earned money, or you can bribe them through earmarks hmm. and, in bills. So... Uh, the Lula administration chose an easy way out and and ended up in jail. And so him and many others of his administration ended up in jail, creating a political crisis in Brazil. It affected other parties as well. So this is not just a left issue. It is principally a left issue, but it's not just a left issue. The center right and the right are also affected and they also have people in jail. Brazil has a protection of, of their politicians. So if you're a senator, if you're a governor, if you're a, a person of a certain level, elected official, um, and you're accused of corruption, you cannot be arrested until you're out of office. Right now, many of the left are out of office and therefore are in jail, hmm. but um, others um, are not. Others are still governing and they cannot be touched, even though everybody knows they're also corrupt and they've been found to be through um, very sound investigations. But um, that's where that's all of that together. So the economic crisis and the political crisis and the corruption crisis leads us to a Brazil that for the last several years have uh, people on the streets protesting, people angry at the establishment, people that used to be able to afford luxury products. And I'm talking about you know, things that are not even all that luxurious, such as yogurt, um, <laughs> and they can no longer afford that. Um, and so people very frustrated with their own personal economic situation caused by the economic crisis. And, and all that leads us to this polarization and um, starts to explain why right now in the elections that are going to happen in two weeks, why Brazilians are preferring a unknown, quote unquote, because he has been in politics for a while, but an unknown anti-establishment fascist leaning potential new president than somebody from the left 
that comes mm. with all this baggage of corruption and right. crisis that they've been undergoing for the last few years. Yeah, woo, there's a lot. I read a, a, a quote that said something like 200,000 Brazilians who were sort of in middle class, had stable jobs, you know, were, like you said, buying fancy yogurt, <laughs> were left unemployed and forced to basically do street work, meaning they had to set up shop on streets to sell, you know, goods and items on the street. And I can only imagine what that feels like if you're someone who's been in the middle class, you've, you know, had your regular nine to five job, you've been able to provide for your family, you've had some sort of cushion, and then all of a sudden you, well, maybe not all of a sudden, but um, at some point you are then forced to scrape for scraps um, on the streets, you know, trying to sell different things. So I can only imagine what, from the perspective of like individual Brazilians, what this sort of shift has meant for people's personal lives. I don't know if you have any stories or if you know of people um, personally who have been affected by this. Um, well, I think in general, um, folks have felt, so I don't know a story of, of uh, riches to rags yeah, um, yeah. that is in my uh, in my personal circle, thankfully, right? But but in general, people are suffering from lack of purchasing power, right? Mm. So their their money, their dollar, or their payout in this case, just doesn't buy as much as it used to. And and as you say, it's it's not a thing that happens overnight. It's a thing that happens slowly. Prices start to rise. Inflation becomes a problem. People used to, you know, the the they used to be able to stretch the dollar far more than they do today. They used to be able to go out to have dinner, and they no longer can. So little things like that start to affect people's quality of life and, mm -hmm. and anger people. Because if you know what it is to be able to go out at night to dinner and you no longer can afford to, you, you don't, but your job hasn't changed and mm -hmm. your salary hasn't changed. The problem is not you. The problem is your environment and the economy. The largest economy uh, in Latin America, America is Brazil's. And it is the ninth largest economy in the world. And uh, so it plays a pretty important role, not just, you know, in Latin America, but in terms of the United States and our relationships with Latin America and South American countries. So you've already described their economy being heavily um, agricultural and, and particularly around soybeans. Uh, can you talk a little bit about specifically with the United States? What sort of trade um, partnerships do we have with Brazil? So Brazil is traditionally a very protectionist country, so it's not actually very pro-trade. It's the, the largest economy in um, Latin America, a lot because of the size of its domestic market, right? It's people, really, the demographic aspect. It's, it's the largest country in terms of people in Latin America. And so that, that generates, that has an effect on the economy. Um, but it's not a very pro-trade country. It does not have, for example, a trade agreement with the United States. It has a semi-trade agreement with its neighbors, so with Argentina, um, with Uruguay, Paraguay, and it's called Mercosur. That's called Mercosur. It has also Chile and Bolivia as semi-members, but it doesn't work as well as one would um, hope it did. So it's not a very pro-trade country. That said, with the United States, it has some interesting um, trade relationships. So it's not the case right now, but a few years back, the Brazil was Florida's number one trading partner, and it still is a very important trading partner with Florida, even if it's no longer number one. Um, it's not. It, there are two elements here. One is Brazil's Embraer, biggest airplane maker, has a factory in Florida. Orange juice is commercialized, so so Florida produces orange juice, as we all know. Yeah. A lot of the oranges come from Brazil, not just from Florida. So what? a lot of the yeah. You mean that the juice Floridian, are the juice is yeah. Brazilian? Not I mean not your that Tropicana, your is, Tropicana Brazilian. is Brazilian. <laughs> Dang it, yeah. we've been fooled. <laughs> And a lot of the orange farms in Florida are also owned by Brazilians. Oh. Um, so, so there's that. And then there's um, tourism because tourism is mm -hmm. also a, an export, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have a foreigner leaving money in the United States. And, and that, that in of itself is you're exporting a service. In this case, it's the entertainment service that you're exporting. But it used to be that Brazil was Disney's largest national visitors, right? So there were more Brazilians than any other country visiting Disney in Florida. Um, again, 
it's no longer the case, but Brazilians are still one of the top visitors of Disney. But during the economic crisis in 2009, the only reason Disney did not close with negative numbers was because of the Brazilians visiting them. Wow. So there are certain <laughs> parts of uh, Florida is obvious, the most obvious example, but the city of New York also received lots of visitors from Brazil. And up until recently, Brazil was um, New York's third largest trading partner. So things have, have gone down a little bit between the relationship between trade relationship between the U.S. and Brazil, mostly because purchasing power in Brazil has gone down. Mm -hmm. But when the economy comes up again, the U.S. will still be um, the a top destination for Brazilian money. Interesting. I did not know any of that. I feel like we can't um, talk about Brazil without talking about race in Brazil. And Brazil's history with slavery is a whole nother show we could do. We won't we won't um, go too far deep into that. But I know that a lot of the tension and the violence and the frustration around the current events in Brazil have a lot to do with race and gender. As you mentioned, the uh, forerunner for the election is anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-everything. Um, so I know race in your just experience uh, with with um, Brazil, um, what have been the conditions of Afro-Brazilians and why is this election important to them? 52% of Brazil uh, of the Brazilian population identifies as black. Um, this is a self-identification process, and it's done through the census. And the latest census was the first one that pegged most, the majority of the population, as identifying as black. Um, and by black, I mean it's a range of, of colors, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not... It, the idea of, of being an Afro-Brazilian in Brazil is slightly different from the United States. Mm -hmm. um, people, people identify as uh, uh, several different types of Afro-Brazilians, um, but, but all fall into the same category, right? So they're all descendants of African slaves, mostly, in some way or form. So, so that's the first time that happened. That was a big, um, when that census came out, that was a big, big sensation in Brazil um, for two reasons. One, um, because finally Brazilians are coming to grasp with this is the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. But also, because it's a self-identification thing, it also means that people are now proud of their ascendancy, right? proud of being Afro-Brazilian, which was not the case before. Hmm. Now, that census came out a few years back, if I'm not mistaken, about five years back. The, the challenges we face today, I wouldn't call them backtracking necessarily, but definitely a backlash, right? So this proud Afro-Brazilian movement that has come about in the last few years are receiving a strong backlash, mostly from white males. So that's a little bit of what happened to Marielle. So there's racism involved. There's also an element of activism. She was going after um, those who were generating violence in the favelas, in the in poor neighborhoods of Rio. And she was a, a militant activist and, and the gangs and the police, because the police are also involved in the gangs, went after her and killed her. Mm. Um, now, it, the correlation here is very close, right? We don't know yet who, who murdered her, but chances are it was probably a white man, mostly because Folks who are um, going after these women activists, because again, they're mostly women, are generally the white men. So there's a there's a strong backlash. That the 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 election is is another example of this. Um, although Bolsonaro has been a little bit more careful about his statements against Afro-Brazilians than, for example, gays or, or women, he still has, you can still find a lot of references, denigrating references to Afro-Brazilians, right? Using words, just like in the U.S., there are words you would never use. In Brazil, there are words you never use, and he's using those words. Mm -hmm. um, so so you, you do see this. His election, even though it's not focused or against Afro-Brazilian, his election will empower those who are part of the backlash to right. continue even more strongly. And we'll see more Marielle Francos. I, I, I truly hope that's not the case. I truly hope I'm wrong. Um, but I do think we're going to see more and more Marielle Francos, more and more Afro-Brazilian activists being killed, murdered, really, by different groups. Marielle Franco's um, story, when I was reading about her, really, it gave me the feeling of, like, 
reading about like the Black Panther movement here in the United States and all of the programming that the Black Panther Party had put in place, but then was lost in the uh, the cloud of anti-Black, um, you know, government fear of communism, government fear of, you know, Black communities in the United States fending for themselves, taking care of themselves. And, and that all that narrative of what the Black Panther Party was trying to do got lost. And you saw a lot of, you know, Black Panther members having to leave the United States or sadly being killed. Uh, Mary Ellie Franco's story, it, it seemed just like a, a complete photocopy of just what's been happening in the past. And it's crazy that it's something that we are dealing with in 2018. I know you're absolutely right. It is very similar. Now, um, not to put a complete damper on this, there are a few positive elements to this story. So uh, up until very recently, in fact, up until this year, only even though 52% of the population identifies as black, only 3% of elected officials identified as black. So you had a very big discrepancy in terms of representation. This election, even though the top candidate is a fascist, anti-gay, anti-women, anti-black. The, the elected officials in Congress and in, in, uh, at the state level Congresses as well, we've seen an increase in um, elections of women. So it's, a, it's the election with the most female elected officials so far. We still have another round, so things might get even better. And talking about Maria Franco, three of her friends, out of anger of her murder, three of her friends ran for state-level office, and they won. The activists are standing up for themselves and are winning. And perhaps in Brazil, the, the top position will, um, will go to a fascist. Other state-level positions are going to more progressive. Interesting. So crazy. It sounds like a very familiar situation. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but let's jump into the Brazilian election so you can um, explain to us just what's at stake here and why why we should why we should care. So uh, the first round of elections took place on uh, October 7th, Sunday, October 7th. The leading candidate, as you mentioned, came out, um, uh, Jair Bolsonaro. He won 40, 46% of the vote. And his opponent, sort of the, the runner-up here, is Fernando Haddad. He fell just short of 30% of the vote. Both men, as you mentioned, uh, come from completely different political parties, have entirely different perspectives as far as um, how you engage the, the base and the things that you are talking about. So you touched a little bit on um, Bolsonaro. Can you just explain a little bit more about his platform and what exactly is he promising to the Brazilian people? Of course. So Bolsonaro is former military. He's he's a career politician. He's been in, in has been in government as an elected official for the last 28 years. He's a nationalist, he's also an economic nationalist, meaning he wants to ensure that um, national champions, um, government-run companies are strong and producing jobs and, and um, uh, profit and so on. So really focused on government-run economics. Um, uh, he's a populist, meaning he's um, very anti, he has anti-democratic streaks, and he's focused on a certain lower um, income class. Right. And also social conservatives. So he has the backing of Christian groups, a very um, radical Christian group. He has uh, he's misogynistic. And so he has statements in which, for example, with a fellow a fellow deputy house representative in Brazil, um, they were having a public argument um, with TV cameras um, around them. And, and one of his responses to her was, you're so ugly, I wouldn't even rape you. Yes, I read um, that. Oh, my and, God. And, and so, an apologist to rape, if you will, um, but but uh, so many others, right? It's, and 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 one could argue these are just things he says, but but no, actually, these are things he truly believes in. Um, so that's Bolsonaro, and Haddad um, is is a very different character. He's from the left. He's from the Workers Party, Lula's party. He ended up as the presidential candidate because um, Lula handpicked him, and for the longest time. They thought he was going to be Lula's vice president. Um, Lula is currently in jail and therefore cannot run for office, but he was hoping to get out. Right. Um, that didn't happen. So, so that's 
um, Fernando Dad went from vice president to president, and they placed a um, woman, Ma- uh, Manuela, underneath him, and they are both running together, right? So both on the left. Um, Haddad himself is a former mayor of Sao Paulo, Sao Paulo being the largest city in Brazil, the economic hub of Brazil. And he's an academic. His background is is more of an academic, though he has spent most of his career as a public servant. And by public servant, I mean he has a few elected positions, but not many. He's mostly been a technocrat, right? Somebody who goes in, creates policies, implements them. Um, He's an economist, economist by trade. He does tend to see the world much more as a government-run economy, but but he knows the, the basics of, of economics, um, which which is something one cannot say the same for Jair Bolsonaro. You mentioned that Haddad is in the same party as Lula, the workers' party. I would imagine that the people, um, knowing full well that Lula is, is arrested and is in jail for, on corruption charges, I mean, I would imagine that the people of Brazil are not looking at the Workers' Party as a viable option. Is that fair? Yeah. Because of the last few years of corruption scandals, of economic mismanagement in the, in the Dilma administration, um, there's there about, well, over half the population in Brazil are, are very frustrated with um, the Workers' Party. And that's what's leading to Jair Bolsonaro's uh, uprise. People are not voting for his fascist positions, right? They're not voting for his anti-minority positions. They're voting for his anti-corruption platform more than uh, anything else. Hmm. Um, they're voting for the fact that he's not going to, or he promises not to end um, the Lava Jato, the car wash investigations. The car hmm. wash investigations are one of the reasons Lula is in jail. And essentially it's a kickback scheme to the Brazilian Brazilian oil company called Petrobras. Um, and that, that investigation has been going on for, at this point, six years, and it has over 200 people arrested as a result of it. Again, many from the Workers' Party, mostly because other parties are, are still in office and people cannot be arrested until they leave office. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, um, as a result of all this economic mismanagement, all of this corruption uh, investigations and arrests, people are frustrated with the Workers' Party and would rather have a... a person with political positions that they don't really believe in, but who might manage the economy a bit better than the Workers' Party. And so in your opinion in assessment of sort of this situation, do you think that, I mean, corruption is very important, um, but I'm, I'm struck by how the public is not seeing how some of these other, um, as you phrased it, these anti democratic tendencies can actually be harmful, particularly when you think about journalism, when you think about things like um, protest and, the, and, and what's been happening with other elected officials like Mary Franco. Tell me your thoughts about why people are able to still side with this person. Yes, corruption is, is horrible, but I mean, when you think about other liberties also at stake, it's, it just strikes me as interesting that people fall easily into avoiding those other democratic principles and sort of staying on course with the corruption thing. I've also just never lived in a corrupted environment, so this just it could be very well my ignorance. But Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, it, it's a conundrum that, that analysts are now trying to understand. For one... A lot of the same things that happened in 2016 in the United States are happening in Brazil. People don't really believe that he is he is going to mm. reinstate dictatorship. They mm. don't really believe mm. that he's going to allow... These are promises he's made, right, mm. in the campaign. Um, but they don't really believe he's going to allow policemen to shoot first, ask questions later. Mm. Um, mm. They don't really believe that he's going to go after gays. They think it's just something he says because he's kind of a rude person. Mm. Um, but so so that's, some, that's an element to it. In Latin America, or rather, in emerging economies in general, economic rights take priority over civil and political rights. When you are growing up poor, you don't really care if you can vote. Um, you care if you can mm. feed your family. Correct. And so that that has always been a much stronger, in, in the spectrum of rights, right, that we have, that are civil, human rights, political rights, economic rights, 
there, there's several, right? Um, but in that spectrum of rights, which in the United States and in Europe, more developed countries, generally civil and political rights, freedom of speech, freedom to vote, freedom from fear, all of those are much more important um, than, than economic rights. But yeah. that's not true for emerging economies. It's actually the opposite. And that makes total sense because if you're like, you know, true point of privilege, check a privilege here on my part. Like if you're someone who grew up in a country like the United States, where for the most part, you have all your basic needs met. Like you said, I can get a job, I can have access to, you know, um, trade, I can go to school, I can, you know, participate in the economy, clean water for the most part. I mean, I don't have to worry too much about the basic needs of my livelihood. Uh, So then, yes, I can turn my energies towards other things like, you know, the right to vote. So that's actually a great point that you that you raised about sort of the the democratic access versus the economic access uh, that people need because you've got to eat. Yeah, and, and so so corruption is is a very important part of of the reasons why the folks are choosing Bolsonaro over Haddad. Um, there's a strong anti-establishment feeling, I think, everywhere. Right, even in the U.S., we yeah, see it. We're not yeah. seeing um, people elected for one party or the other. People are just being kicked out of office, regardless of their political position, and new people are being put in. So it's an anti-establishment feeling, and, and Bolsonaro galvanizes it. And then the third element is violence. Um, there's an increasing level of violence in Brazil. Of the top 50 um, most violent cities in the world, 18 mm-hmm. are in Brazil. Um, and, and we're talking about war zone-like violence levels, right? Um, br- some cities in Brazil have homicides rates as high as in Iraq. Mm. And so um, there's there's a lot of frustration with the government not having taken care of it. And again, the frustration is aimed um, directly at the Workers' Party, who's been in office. They've been in office for the last few years, and they have done less than what the population would have liked. And that goes to the Marielle Franco assassination. Um, nobody's investigated what's happening. Nobody mm. knows who murdered her. And the weapons were, that were used are from the state police. So we don't know wow. if the state police killed her. Wow. Um, we don't know if the weapons were stolen from the state police or bought, perhaps, because the state police needs money because the state of Rio has gone broke. So there's a lot of, of unpacking to do in the violence part of Brazil. But that's a, another a third element um, and reason why Brazil Brazilians are preferring Bolsonaro, a former military guy, strong man. Uh, and that mm. over Haddad, who they see as uh, weak. So he's sort of like their saving grace here, right? The guy who's going to come in and not just deal with corruption, but end crime and end all of these homicides that are happening. Yeah. Going back to some of the, the demographics around the voters, I'm really interested in this piece uh, because, again, of the similarities to the United States. So could you just talk about the base of supporters for Bolsonaro? I mean, it's not what I thought it was when I was reading some of the information. It looks like it's a mixed bag here, but who are the folks that are supporting him? Yeah, no, it's actually surprisingly counterintuitive. His his base are, are young people under 30, um, mostly because they didn't experience a dictatorship. And so they think everything he says is bluster and Brazil is not going to go back to a dictatorship. So definitely young people under 30. The middle class and the upper middle class, most of those who have been losing purchasing power. Um, and, and so they are frustrated with their inability to buy the products that they were able to buy before. And the upper middle class especially sees the U.S. and sees how good Trump has been for the the U.S. economy. And they think that Bolsonaro would do something similar, right? Mm. Will have a very similar effect. And maybe they're not wrong because Wall Street seems to adore Bolsonaro. So that's an interesting kind of group of people who are highly educated and yet are still voting for this individual. The Christian community, which in Brazil is very, very strong, has the largest evangelical community in the world. And they are social conservatives, and, and as is Bolsonaro. And so um, they're also voting for him because they see the left as going against their priorities, which right. are social priorities. And then obviously men, overwhelmingly men over women, right? There's a, a female movement in Brazil against Bolsonaro. There are many women who are voting for him, but um, the, his negatives are highest among women. So um, his electorate is, is majority male. So his, there, it's majority male, younger people under 30, Christian community uh, leaders or commission people who, who identify as Christian, um, and the upper middle 
class. Um, and then I also read that there is um, folks in the rural communities of Brazil who are the ones who are heavily involved in the agricultural sector, which, as you mentioned, is a huge part of the Brazilian economy. Uh, is that something that's true, that just sort of rural populations of Brazil also see Bolsonaro as an opportunity to sort of you know, regain some of what they've lost in the lost economy of the the last administration. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, rural in Brazil doesn't necessarily mean poor. It's such an agricultural economy. You have folks in the rural areas that are actually very well off. They also like Bolsonaro's idea that everybody can have a weapon because they they have their battles with the indigenous and, and squatters and so on and so forth. So, so they like the idea of having kind of a wild, wild west, you know, legally accepted. Um, now, who's the people who are against him are generally the poor. Bolsonaro is definitely by far the favorite, and the groups that support Haddad are, are significantly smaller than the groups that support Bolsonaro. So the use of uh, social media um, is also very powerful in these elections. Again, very much um, echoes what we saw with the 2016 elections here in the United States. And so I read that Bolsonaro uses WhatsApp to to reach his base uh, and share updates and do calls to action. And so I and you did talk about some counter movements uh, that have also taken the, the stage here. Just what are your thoughts on the role of social media in Brazil's elections? So in, in emerging economies in general, WhatsApp is, is a preferred form of communication rather than SMS. That's mostly because there are no charges. And it used to be, I, I don't actually know if it's still the case, but it used to be the case that it was a very secure form of communication. And so for countries that were undergoing some sort of authoritarian rule, that, that was a very safe way to communicate. So it's ingrained in society. Everybody uses WhatsApp. It's part, it's almost as... Um, common in terms of use as, as Facebook is in the United States. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that is a really good way for you to um, communicate, right, to send information out. It's hard in one way because you can't promote the post. It doesn't work like Facebook. You rely on people forwarding things. It's like it's almost like the email of the '90s. You know how your like uncle that didn't really know. Oh my god! Yes. Send all those spam emails. Yeah. It's like that. Same thing. I totally get those. It's people's SMS. Yeah. Um, And so you're getting all these spams from all these old uncles, um, (laughs) and and it's becoming viral. so yes, WhatsApp is um, is is really the source of fake news in Brazil. It's hard to track it because there's no search function and 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 there's no promotion either. So it's hard to make it go viral. But very similar to what Trump has been able to do with the media and get so much earned media, free media, because he says all these absurd things. Bolsonaro has been able to get tons of virality, like make his posts and fake news viral in WhatsApp because they say absurd things. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yes, WhatsApp has been just like Facebook was um, the problem of the election in 2016. Yeah. Um, WhatsApp is um, the the source of fake news for the election in Brazil in 2018. I, I my when you said uncle, I got Uncle Francis, I love you. You're, you're the best. But man, uh, I guess. <laughs> I be and not just my uncle, but my relatives, you know, in Nigeria, I get all sorts of videos and I'm like, what is this? Where is this coming from? And my uncle sent me a video, I won't say of who, but it was a political figure. And I looked at the source of the video and I was like, this is not real. What is this thing? So if you're if you're not able to discern between you like, you know, uh, good, you know, reputable sources and non reputable sources, I can see how um, easily easy it is to to spread misinformation. And uh, it's just for better or worse, in the case of Brazil, uh, it's it's still fascinating the use of things like WhatsApp and Facebook and Twitter, the the use of that to, to sway minds, frankly, and to push agendas. Um, And it's just, in in my opinion, unfortunate that uh, this agenda is what's being pushed in Brazil. But nonetheless, um, what what it so what other there are a couple of other counter movements and you hinted at it. Uh, There's a woman's group uh, called, is it El Now? Yes. So it, it, 
translates as hashtag not him. Um, mm. it, that's how it translates. And, and it has almost 4 million women on Facebook. And it's essentially women who are not going to vote for Bolsonaro. Um, there, are, there are other movements as well that are not galvanizing around him just galvanizing around women. So there's an, another group called Brazilian Women, which is led by an Afro-Brazilian female entrepreneur called Luisa Trajano, who owns, like, um, I would say, the Target equivalent of Brazil. Um, and <laughs> she is pushing the idea that women should vote for women. And that is one of the reasons why women have been elected in Brazil so much more this uh, this time around than in, in previous elections. Also, women are running more often than they used to because they're being encouraged by this um, Afro-Brazilian entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, very amazing. Very amazing. And it's the same thing that we see here in the United States with the number of women who've run for office. You'll see that here on November 6th, I think in record numbers for various local, uh, state, uh, senatorial races. So definitely uh, good news to to hear. So what are the next steps with the elections, uh, Yana? What are the what's uh, what's up next for Brazil? So um, Bolsonaro is definitely going to win. Um, hopefully the, uh, the political, civil and political rights activists will um, get their act together and, and work hard just like they did in the United States in the resistance to fight his um, uh, anti-human rights platform. And um, and we just have to cross our fingers and hope for the best, really. Yeah, yeah. And you said there are some congressional seats, um, state congressional seats in Brazil that are that are up for grabs. So similarly here in the United States, there are state congressional <laughs> seats up for grabs. And so even though there's maybe someone in power who people don't agree with, um, it sounds like um, in Brazil the states or the local elected officials still have some say as to the national direction of, of the, of the country. Um, if, if my understanding of their structure is correct, there will be opposition, um, elected official opposition, but as is the case in most countries in Latin America, the president is really strong mm. uh, and institutions are not as strong as they are in the United States. Mm. So, there are there is much concern about uh, anti-democratic norms, the in and the institutional institutionalization of certain um, parts of government, right? So more more oversight parts of government. So there's a lot of concern. There will be opposition, but but the checks and balances in Brazil are not as strong as they are in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. The last piece I want to talk about as we do on this show is why any of this matters to us here in the United States, Yana. Like. You know, what obviously, you know, Americans can't really do much per se um, about the Brazilian elections. But just if you had to summarize why anybody should care about the Brazilian elections, if you're in the United States, like what would you what would you say? It's one of the largest economies in, in the world. It might be the fifth largest by 2050. So we're looking at uh, growth here. Um, we're obviously, if you live in Florida and Brazil goes down the drain, you're going to be affected. Mm -hmm. Our oranges are going to be affected. It's one of the norms in, in or the stillworth in the region, right? So if uh, suddenly he does start uh, taking down, tearing down democratic norms, you're going to see something similar happen in other countries because it becomes a contagion, policy contagion effect in which people say or other countries look at Brazil and say, oh, Brazil's doing this, so I can as well. If we're going to elect a fascist in Brazil, other countries might do the same. There might be other fascist candidates that we have never heard about that are going to be elected in other countries in Latin America. So, so that is something that we need to be concerned about. The region itself is a region we want to have stability in because it is our region. It's the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. um, we don't want to attract more situations like what's happening in Venezuela. Are the refugee crisis in Venezuela is almost as large as a Syrian refugee crisis, and it's right in our it's next our next door neighbor. We don't want that to happen. We don't want another country in crisis in the region. So, so those are all the reasons why the United States should care about. The situation in Brazil, there are economic reasons, there are political reasons, and they're just human reasons. You don't right. want an anti-gay, <laughs> anti-woman leader um, in such a large country. Ooh, there's, a, there's a little bit more I want to unpack with as you were talking, but we don't, we've run out of time. Um, and so we'll have to have you on for a third conversation. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but thank you so much, uh, Yana, for explaining the Brazilian elections. I have a lot clearer sense of what's at stake here and you know, um, I think for me, because I, I do try to make sure I, I remain balanced and fair with these conversations, I think for me, I'm, I'm just curious to see 
you know, what exactly happens out of this perspective of, you know, we la- we use these labels like fascists and socialists and populists and democracies. and But I think at the bottom, the, the bottom line is people just want to eat. Um, people just want to go to work. People just want to be able to provide for their families. And I'm curious just to see how um, this individual, how Bolsonaro, even Trump to a degree and, and all of the other um, sort of elected officials that are popping up around the world who have similar tone. I'm curious just to see what they do and and if, in fact, they're able to crack this this idea of democracy um, being the way forward and if inclusion is the way forward. I'm just curious just to see, you know, what uh, magic they're able to pull together um, with their campaigns and with their administration. So um, that's the perspective, at least, that I'm taking <laughs> with this. Uh, and, and I'm curious just to see, you know, what what will happen um, going forward in places like Brazil. So that's how I'm Yeah, staying. no, me too. Yeah. Um, it'll be a bellwether of things to come. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to this episode of What in the World You Can catch others on our website at whatintheworldpodcast.com. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Of course, you can listen on WERA.FM every Saturday at 11 a.m. You can listen to What in the World and please share it with your friends. Also support Arlington Independent Media with a small donation. If you can, all of the proceeds go to support the wonderful equipment and the wonderful people here at the station uh, that help me with this show and help so many others. So, Yana, you know the drill. This <laughs> when, when things are tough, the news is bad, when um, dictators threaten to take over the world, what keeps you in a good mood? What song keeps you in a good mood? I, I have to say that right now it's Pink Floyd's The Wall. Pink Floyd's The Wall. Any particular reason why? Well, they, they were going against um, anti-democratic rulers, and, and that's what we need right now. We need more artists singing out against anti-democratic norms. All right, there you go. Pink Floyd, if you're listening, please spread the word of our wonderful show. Uh, thank you so much, Yana. I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us, and we'll be watching the news for what's to happen in Brazil. And please take care of yourself over there in Mexico City, and uh, uh, thank you again. No, thank you. Thank you for having me again. 